Well, good morning, friends. Good morning. And if it is your first time here visiting Wheaton Bible Church, we just want to say hello and that we would absolutely love to connect with you. So if you want, you can scan the QR code that's on your seat, fill it out, learn more about us and how you can get connected. Or if you'd rather, there are connect cards that are sitting in the seat back in front of you. You can go ahead and grab one of those, fill it out, drop it in one of the boxes that are by the doors. Or if you're a people person, you can go take it to our welcome desk and say hi to someone there. You also noticed when you walked in that there are a lot of tables out in the atrium. That is because there are a ton of groups here for you to get connected in. So if you are looking to build friendships or be challenged and encouraged in your relationship with Jesus, there is a place here for you. So what we would love for you to do is after the service, go out, connect with one of those ministry leaders at a table and learn ways that you can get connected. Or you can scan the QR code again in front of you and click join our community. One of the tables that is out there that I would love to highlight is our team from Puente del Pueblo. Puente is an awesome place for you to serve. It's one of the places that I have served here at my time at Wheaton Bible, and I've really, really loved it if you enjoy serving, especially with the vulnerable and empowering others, especially youth. So for all my friends out there that don't speak Spanish, don't worry, you don't have to be bilingual, um, but it's an awesome place for you to serve. Our after-school program runs Monday through Friday from 3 to 6 p.m., um, and you can join our team at Puente, and I know that they would love to meet you, connect with you, and have you serve with them. So that's all I have for you this morning. Again, thank you so much for joining us this morning, and let's worship together. Good morning, everybody. What a privilege to be invited into a life of worship, to put our eyes and our hearts and our minds on our living God. He is a God of holiness and perfection and love, and he made himself known to us so gloriously through Jesus. And let's humble ourselves this morning and come before him as God's people and as a church. And let's stand and read responsively as we begin from 1 Kings. O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and steadfast love for your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke through his servant Moses. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he not leave us or abandon us, but incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments his statutes, and his ordinances, which he commanded our ancestors.
please have a seat.
Praise the Lord. Lord of the dance is with us, and we get to follow him through this life. Amen? We are um, celebrating uh, the fact that we can rest in Jesus today. And John 15, 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. And we're drawn to him by the beauty of his love. And that's what we're going to celebrate with this next song. So let's stand and celebrate his love.
an important fact. The first neighborhood Bible club we ever did in the church was in 1983, 39 years ago. And in all of those 39 years ago, there has only been one year in which we were not able to do this as far as I understand, which it was uh, two years ago, I believe. Um, uh, if you know anything about that, we created this so we, could, so, so we get the chance to uh, share the gospel with people um, inside the church and outside the church. Um, uh, we do games, and we do crafts, and we share stories about Jesus, and we invite all these families to come and join us. This year, we are grateful because 19 families from our congregation uh, opened their homes so they could hold a neighborhood Bible club. The theme this year was the God of, uh, the God of wonders, in which we share with kids who God is, how much he loves them, and what Jesus came to do um, for them. Um, but I have a quick story to share about this specific, this specific uh, summer thing. One of the kids that came to one of our, our, our neighbor Bible clubs, uh, her mom is a Hindu mom. And she attended this, and the, the lady was super happy to see that this kid was joining one of our neighborhood Bible clubs. And as you know, if you've ever been in a part of one of those, one of the things that we do in the neighborhood Bible clubs is we memorize verses. What this girl loved loved the Naval Bible Club so and so much that she wanted to keep her Bible verses, so she took him home. Now, I don't know how much you're going to make of that, but this is, what I, this is the reason why I celebrate. We don't know if that girl is a Christian yet, and we don't know if her family will become Christians yet. But this we know, that the word of the Lord is going with them, and that that word is going to be in their house until the Lord does something. And for that, we want to give glory to God. In addition to that, then let me share with you really quick about the TVC or uh, Summer Family Nights. Once again, this is something very similar to the Neighbor Bible Club. The difference, though, is that uh, TVC had 25 families registered. Eight of them came from outside uh, Streamwood or outside TVC. The theme for that one was lights, how God lights his, uh, his bright in the midst of darkness. And I also have a pretty cool story on that one. One of the kids that came from outside TVC, um, 
was brought by the mom, and the kid loved so and so much the family nights that the lady started to come to church because her kid was dragging her into church. Isn't that a beautiful thing? This is how the Lord works, and for that, we also want to give glory to God. So we want to thank all of you that participated in the summer program. We want to thank all of you that were praying for this all throughout the summer. Uh, especially we are so thankful for our team, for the staff, um, our Kids Life staff, because they work super hard to put this together. And I want to remind you that this is one of the reasons why we also uh, continue to support the church financially. So we can continue to do this kind of ministry. So we can continue to spread the gospel and be light and salt in the midst of a broken world. Let me pray. Lord, we are grateful that you have uh, called us, Lord, to be sent out people, to be in our communities, to love people radically, Lord, to give ourselves for the sake of the gospel. I'm grateful, Lord, for every family member, every family that opened their doors to make people feel comfortable and loved and welcomed. Lord, we don't know what is the magnitude of what you did this summer through our families and through our kids and in our kids. But I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you use everything that kids heard, everything that they saw, everything that they experienced for the glory of your name and the well-being of people. I pray, Lord, for, for saving uh, relationships with you, for conversions, Lord. In your time, Lord, we are trusting that the Holy Spirit will do something and is doing something. We are grateful, Lord, that we get to listen to your word, that we get to examine the scriptures together. I pray, Lord, that you speak to us this morning. May the Holy Spirit open up our minds, give us understanding, move our affections, and affect our wills. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says, I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's scripture as a sign of reverence to him. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up. We'll be reading verses 20 through 30, or if you have your Matthew scripture journals, it's on page 56. It says this, Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
All right, good morning again. How's everyone doing today? <laughs> Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone, today. How's everyone doing today? That's beautiful. We just worship our Lord. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal, and I want to welcome you all again. And today we continue with our series based on the Gospel of Matthew, a series that we have called The King and His Kingdom. And the text we just read is a text that talks about a topic or a theme that we should all be familiar with, with which is the concept of guilt. See, guilt is one of those things that if you don't have the right perspective or the right understanding, <clears throat> it can literally destroy your life and the life of the people you love. If there's one thing that both the secular world and the Christian world agree on, is that everyone would say that guilt has the potential to destroy your life. It's extremely dangerous. See, it is catastrophic. The difference between the secular approach to guilt and the Christian approach to guilt is that Christians believe that the Bible shows us that guilt has secrets. That guilt functions like an inner voice that tells you that there's something wrong with your heart and my heart. It is a voice that it doesn't go away. It doesn't matter how much you get distracted. It is a voice that doesn't go away. It doesn't matter how much you pretend that nothing is wrong. It is a voice that doesn't go away even if you try to convince yourself that everything is okay. It is a voice that doesn't go away even if you continue to blame others. It is that voice that never goes away. What the Bible calls us to do with this guilt is to confront it, deal with it, and take it to Jesus. So the way we're going to talk about this topic is under these three points. We're going to talk about the weight of guilt, the root of guilt, and the freedom from guilt. The weight of guilt, the root of guilt, and, guilt, and the freedom from guilt. Let's go with the first point, the weight of guilt. Right at the end of this passage we just read, we find one of the most amazing passages in the Scripture, and one of the most popular passages in the Scripture, in verse 28, this says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That verse is so famous that not only all Christians have read it and heard it and probably heard multiple preachings on that, but even non-Christians know about that verse. It's a beautiful verse because he says, because it can be applied to all kinds of people living under different kinds of circumstances. It's a verse that talks about these spiritually weary people, spiritually burdened people that should and can come to Jesus and should be able to find rest. What I want you to see, though, is that even though that verse can be applied to all kinds of people living under all kinds of different circumstances... The context of the text says that that verse should be applied not only but mainly to people that are struggling with guilt. That verse is for you if you are struggling with guilt. And that verse is for me when I struggle with guilt. 
Once again, this verse can be applied to all kinds of people living under different kinds of circumstances and situations. But at the end of the day, the primary reason why that verse is there is for people like you and me that continue to struggle with guilt. The word weary can be translated as exhausted. Someone that is losing heart, someone that is uh, struggling spiritually. The word burden is to feel that you're carrying this load that you can get rid of. Picture this person that is living a life carrying this load that doesn't allow them to be to feel free. The combination of these two words is extremely important because it says that a person that is struggling with guilt is a person that is exhausted of carrying this load. That it doesn't matter how much the person tries to do, nothing is enough. That it doesn't matter how much you try to distract yourself, nothing is enough. That it doesn't matter everything that you do or pretend or try to fix, nothing is enough. Guilt is one of those things that just doesn't go, it doesn't go away. It's like a heavy load that goes with you wherever you go. So the question that you got to ask me as a preacher is, why do I say that that verse, verse 28, applies and is mainly about guilt? Well, because at the beginning of the text, Jesus is calling these towns, these cities, to repentance. And the point is super clear. The solution for guilt is repentance. The answer to guilt is repentance. Jesus says that repentance is so necessary because it allows you to recognize what you have done wrong. It allows you to recognize that we have done wrong things both vertically, vertically and horizontally. Repentance is required because we have sinned not only against one another and against other people, but we have sinned against God. Repentance, without repentance, there's no freedom from guilt. Repentance is one of those things that as Christians we hear all the time. I would actually dare to say that there has not been one Sunday in which we gather to preach the gospel and hear God's word and worship in which we haven't heard the word repentance. What's the problem with repentance then? That is so easy to say and so hard to do. I know that we could say I'm sorry really quick, but it doesn't mean that you're repenting. I know that I could say I'm sorry really quick, but it doesn't mean that I'm repenting. True, true, true repentance is really hard to do. Easy to say, so hard to do. And I will show you in point number two why is that so hard. For now, I want you to keep in mind that Jesus is going to make it extremely clear that if you're struggling with guilt as much as I struggle with guilt, the solution must be genuine repentance. We get that, for example, in verse 20, when it says that then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. In verse 21, it says something similar to another city. By the way, let me stop, stop there for a second. You know those names that we have there? Every time I run into names in the Bible, I go and I check three different sources on how to pronounce those names. None of them agree. 
And I say that because as I pronounce these things, it's not because I'm an immigrant that I have issues with it. It's because you haven't made up your mind about how to pronounce those things. Is that clear? Verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So here Jesus is confronting these towns that if you care about it, they're in the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And they said that they have enough information, that they have enough proof to believe in Jesus and to repent of their sin. But that their hearts are so hard that they just don't want to. Look at what Jesus is saying. Jesus goes as far as to say that if the miracles that he performed in their midst, if he would have performed the same miracles in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Which is a crazy verse to me, by the way. Because it tells you that God knew what he needed to do in order to bring these people to repentance. And for some reason, in his sovereignty, he didn't. He says, if I would have done these miracles over there, they would have repented. And Jesus is saying this purposely. He's calling them to understand and believe that so they could actually come to repentance. Believe and repent. Believe and repent, which is always the concept that you find in the Bible. And yet these people are not doing it. And it is because they're not doing it purposely, church. Purposely. That in verse 22 he says, it will be more bearable for Tyrant and Sidon and the date of judgment than for you. This is so important for us to understand. This is so important for us to keep in mind. Because part of the reason, part of one of the things that the text is saying is that part of the reason why we struggle with guilt is because we know that deep down inside we deserve judgment. And I also know that it is hard for many people, even including inside the church, to understand and accept the concept of judgment. And part of the argument is because the argument will go something like this. Why would God, if he's a loving God, judge people and hold them accountable for something they did not know? Have you ever heard that before or ever thought of that before? But one important thing that you got to get from this text is that Jesus says... That God holds people accountable according to what they know. God holds people accountable, not to the things they don't know, but to the things that they know. That's the whole argument of Paul in Romans chapter 1 and 2. He says that all, everyone knows to a certain degree about God. And that everyone knows to a certain degree about what is right and wrong. He says that nature tells you about God and our conscience tells us about what is right and wrong. Paul is saying something very similar to what Jesus says here. He is saying that our guilt is the product of us rejecting the truth we have already received. That no one can say to God, well, I, I, I didn't know. And that the only way this guilt goes away is when we truly believe and repent. Once again, these are the only two things the Bible requires. 
It's not believe, repent, and do a lot of stuff. It's not believe, repent, and go to church. It's not believe, and repent, and give money. It's not believe, repent, and serve. It's not believe, and repent, and live in community. It's believe, and repent, and all of that stuff comes out of that. Believe, and repent. Judgment, according to the scriptures, it always comes based on the amount of knowledge we have received. Everyone will be judged according to how much they have received. Judgment is God saying that everything that we have done must be paid for. A few few weeks ago, I talked a little bit about this when I was talking about hell, which I'm going to talk about again in in a second because it shows up in the text again. But one of the arguments that I made two, made two weeks ago is that this concept of judgment for modern ears, uh, for modern culture, they find this doctrine the most offensive Christian doctrine. And maybe that's your case. Maybe you also find the concept of judgment an offensive doctrine. But, but I want to spend just a few minutes explaining to you again some of that. Why is it that judgment is such a crucial thing that we understand and accept? And I want to show you really quick, why is it that in our culture, modern culture, why is it that culture struggles so much with the concept of judgment? And today I'm just going to give you two reasons. Number one, is because we are part of what we will call an expressive individualistic society, meaning, and this is a fact, that 80% of, America's in the, of Americans in the United States today believe that the concept of morality should be divorced from any religion and is only bound to personal opinions and desires. 80% of Americans in the United States today believe that the individual gets to define what is right and wrong, not religion, not culture, not tradition. The individual. So why is it that they struggle with judgment? Well, I have a twofold answer for that. Because if the individual defines what is right and wrong, if you get to define what is right and wrong, all morality is out the door. If everyone is right, no one is right. It's impossible for you to, for you and me to define 100% what is right and wrong, because we are bound to our own passions and desires and understanding. Let me say it again. If morality, if objective morality is out the door, is, is based on the individual, then all morality is out the door. The second reason why this is a struggle, and why I say, and what I would say that the uh, uh, Modern culture does not know how to deal with this. It's because if I get to decide what is right or wrong, then I would always always be inconsistent. And I want to show you a text. I'm just going to read it to you and explain it to you. And I'm going to see how modern culture will see it. And I want to see how many of us here actually see it that way. So this comes from John chapter 8. This is an interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are bringing a woman that was caught in adultery. You remember that story? So these are the religious leaders bringing this woman and saying to Jesus, 
The law of Moses told us that if someone gets caught in adultery, we should stone that person to death. Obviously, the religious leaders are trying to, get, trying to trick Jesus into saying something that he's, uh, that, he's not, um, that he's not supposed to do, right? And the way they're seeing it is super simple and actually very clever. Because if Jesus says, don't stone that lady, they would say, you are violating the law of God. Right? But if, you, if Jesus says, stone the lady, then they would say, I thought you were all into the loving business. Which is super interesting how the Lord deals with that. Because he, he calls these leaders and say, okay, you're ready to stone this lady? Whoever of you who is free of sin, not guilty at all of anything, throw the first stone. And the text says that the older you get, the more sins you have. Therefore, from the oldest to the youngest, it started to live in turn. Now, modern culture will hear that and they would say, yes, that's the kind of Jesus I like. Nobody gets to condemn anybody. Nobody gets to say to anybody what is wrong and right. Jesus did it right. I love that, Jesus. But then Jesus turns around and looks at the girl and says, I'm not going to condemn you. Go and sin no more. My translation, stop, stop sleeping around, girl. Reserve sex for marriage. And modern culture will hear that and say, hold on, I don't like that Jesus. How is it that he gets to tell me who I get to sleep with or not? Can you see it? When the individual decides what's right and wrong, not only all morality is out the door, but we live completely inconsistent lives. But as Christians... Judgment is necessary. Because if judgment, uh, judgment does not exist, if it's not a biblical doctrine, then we cannot believe in a, in, a, in a God of love, which was my argument two weeks ago. It is impossible to say that God is love and for half this God looking at violence, injustice, oppression, and deception and say, well, it's okay, you can let it go. He will not be a God of love. He will be a monster, an indifferent monster. Which I find interesting because if we say that God looks at our violence and injustice and oppression and deception, and we say, well, God, why can't you just let it go? The only people that would say that will be the oppressor. But if you were the one that was oppressed, you would never say that because inside your heart you will cry out for justice. There's a theologian that talks a lot about this. His name is uh, Miroslav Volf, which is a Croatian theologian, and he says this, that if God were to be like that, he would be secretly nourished more violence. You know what that means? That if God looks away, it's just an invitation for people to continue to do what they're already doing. And this is part of the reason why Jesus says, unless you believe in my evidence, unless you believe in the information I'm giving you, you will, be, uh, you will, have to des you will deserve judgment. Therefore, believe and repent. 
Believe or repent. And somebody may ask and say, what does that have to do with us today? Well, this is going to be my argument for you. That whenever you feel guilty, whenever I feel guilty, is because our hearts continue to tell us that there are times and there have been times in which we reject what we have seen and heard. That's why you struggle with guilt. You struggle with guilt and I struggle with guilt because there has been times in which we have chosen other things instead of God. You struggle with guilt and I struggle with guilt because there has many times in which we go opposite to what our conscience says. You know, I can clearly remember, clearly remember times in my life in which I could almost hear the Holy Spirit saying, don't say that, don't say that, don't say that. And I choose to ignore him. Purposely, in my sinful heart. And part of the reason why I struggle with guilt and you struggle with guilt is because deep down inside, we too know that we deserve judgment. Listen, if you are here today and you don't think that you deserve judgment, you might not be a Christian. Listen to what Chris Costaldo says. Chris Costaldo is a pastor in Naperville area. He's a pastor and author. He's uh, a friend of mine, actually. This is what he says. In a very poetic way, too. The human soul thirsts for deliverance. Minds are hunted and returning to past faults, remembering some dishonorable conduct or failure. We live in the shadow of such a guilt, and none of us, even the most circ circumspect, can avoid it. There is a corner of every house, including the most immaculate, that is in disarray, stained with the dirt of this world. Whenever you visit that corner in your heart, where injurious patterns of guilt reside, the voice of condemnation clears its throat and screams, you are guilty. Everything must be paid for. This is part of the reason why we struggle. We are weary and burdened. This is part of the reason why we try to fix things that we can fix. Like if we can put things in balance, you know. I messed up this much, so I have to do this much. And it doesn't matter if you do this much or you do more. You're still in your heart. You feel you're exhausted by your guilt. It's like this heavy load that you carry. And as mentioned before, it doesn't matter how much you do. It just doesn't go away. Now, not only we do need to understand what guilt is and what it does, and not only we do need to understand that the solution is to believe and repent, but we also need to understand why is it, as I said before, that repenting, like truly repenting and believing, sometimes is so hard. Why is it that this is so hard? So point number two, the root of guilt. So in verse 21, the Lord talks to Chorazin and Bethsaida, and he compares these towns to Tyre and Sidon. And in verse 23, he does something very similar, but now he's doing it with Capernaum and Sodom. Verse 23, he says, 
and you, Capernaum, will, uh, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Notice that Jesus is doing with this town exactly the same thing that he did with the other towns. He says, if the miracles that I performed with you guys, if the information I gave you, if everything that I showed you, if I would have done those things in those other towns, they would have repented. And you have more than what they had. And you, just, you still don't repent. So the question you got to ask the text is, what is it that these three towns had in common? What is it that these people struggled with that did not allow them to actually believe, 100% believe, and 100% repent? And the answer is super simple. Pride. Now, the problem with concepts like that in church environment is that we hear those all the time to the point that we start to ignore them. But pride is the reason why you committed a sin. Pride is the reason why you uh, struggle with guilt. Pride is the reason why we reject what the Lord has said. Pride, by definition, is us feeling superior to others. Pride is thinking that we know best. Pride is putting ourselves in the center of everything. Pride makes much of us and little of God and others. Pride is the ultimate delusion. Pride is blindness to who we really are and what we really need. Pride is all of that. Now, the reason why I think that this is what's happening here, because as the Lord is comparing these cities with these other towns, when you read the Old Testament, for example, in Isaiah chapter 23, it tells you that Tyre, Tyre, Tyre and Sidon struggle with pride. Now, I'm sure that you're familiar with Sodom. I'm sure you heard before or read before that one of the struggles that uh, Sodom had is that it was their sexual immorality. And people would say that that was the biggest sin. And I want to invite you to see that sexual immorality is not the biggest sin. The biggest sin is the sin behind the sin. Which according to Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 46, the reason why Sodom practiced sexual immorality is because of their pride. Pride is the sin behind the sin. Pride is the reason why we struggle with guilt. Pride is the reason why we are weary and burdened. Pride is the reason why we ignore what we have seen and heard. Pride is the one that says to God, I don't need you. I know best. Pride is the one that makes us believe that we are our own gods. Pride is the spirit of individualism. Pride is what makes us, uh, keeps us from be truly believing and truly repenting. That's what makes it. Pride is what makes this so hard. And I'm going to make it super simple. Either you kill your pride or your pride is going to kill you. Now, let me give you a little bit more of information there. Did you, know, did you notice the word Hades in the middle of the text? The word Hades in the Bible is just another name for hell. And the word literally means grave. The underworld, the world of the dead. So if you want to know what Hades looks like, 
And if you want to know what hell looks like, listen to how Isaiah chapter 14 describes hell. He says, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. Similar to what we just read. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds and I will make myself the most high. Do you know why you need to understand that? Because hell is about the kingdom of pride. Hell, Hades, is the place where people finally get what they wanted. A world without God. So if you think that God is unfair in allowing people to go there, you got to ask the question, why is it that hell is described as the place where people finally live without God. And you got to ask the question, how come God is stopping you from getting there? This is part of the reason why C.S. Lewis says that there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those whom God, God at the end says, your will be done. You know that phrase of hell being the place where finally people get what they want? A life without God? I borrowed that from C.S. Lewis. This is the awful, awful picture of hell. You know, hell is not a place in which people are remembered from eternity. Man, can I get a second chance? That's a misunderstanding of what the Bible talks about hell. Hell is not a place in which people say, Lord, please give me one more break. Hell is a place in which people are so consumed with themselves that they don't even know that they need to be rescued. That's how dangerous pride is. If you don't think that that's the case, all you have to do is read Luke chapter 16. It talks about a rich man that is in hell, and he's asking Abraham for water. How, how full of yourself you are that you are in hell and you think that you can command Abraham to bring you water. All scholars agree and saying, this guy is not even asking for help to get out of hell. Hell is an awful place. In which God finally gives to people what they always wanted. The question is. Why isn't that. He's not allowing you. To get there. You know what is the hardest thing for me to answer at a personal level. Is why me. I don't know how to answer that. 
Actually, I know how to answer it in point number three, but not here. Why, why you? I mean, aren't you conscious of your sin? Aren't you guilty? Don't we all deep down inside know that we deserve judgment? If you're not there yet, you might want to ask the Holy Spirit to make it clear to you because you might not be a Christian yet. So how do we get rid of our pride? How do we fight against it? And this is where I think you have to be careful because pride is not one of those things that you could say, I'm not going to be proud anymore. I'm going to work hard and I'm going to be humble. You know what the problem with that is? That as, at the moment you say that, you're not humble. And you're trusting yourself way too much. I want to invite you to consider that fighting against your pride or growing in humility is the result of something else. Is the byproduct of something else. That humility does not come to you because you work hard on it. That it has to be given to you and it's given to you when something else happens. Point number three. The freedom from guilt. So obviously the first thing that Jesus says in the text is that in order for us to get rid of our pride and to grow in humility. In order for us to understand that even though we deserve judgment, uh, we, we won't get there. If you have placed your faith in Jesus. The first thing that you need in order for you to get rid of your guilt is to believe and repent. That's what he says in verses 20 and 21. This is the reason why he calls them to repent. Believe for miracles you've seen and repent. The problem with repentance, though, is that you have to understand that true and genuine repentance is not you repenting because you got caught. Or that you are repenting because you see how awful the consequences of your sins are. Or you're repenting because you want to avoid hell. Or you're repenting because it makes you uncomfortable. Repenting is much more than that. Repenting requires three things. Number one, we repent. Genuinely repent. When we understand that we don't deserve anything at all. That everything we've gotten is because of the grace of God. You know where I get that from? Verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. If we were blind in our pride, the only reason why we can see is because the Lord chose to reveal him. It's because the Lord chose to come to you. It's because God took the initiative. It's because he made it happen. Not you, not me. And Jesus makes it even more clear in verse 27. 
All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You know how amazing the, gra the, gra the grace of God is? That Jesus sees our guilt. Jesus sees our pride. Jesus sees our misery, and he chooses to reveal himself to us. And he chooses to reveal the Father to us. It was us not looking for him, him looking for us. And that's what he says in verse 28. Come to me. You who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. It's because of grace and grace alone. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and, I will, and you will find rest for your souls. Which is the second thing that leads you to repentance. What leads you to repentance not only is to know that God extended grace already when you did not deserve it. And we're not looking for it. But because repentance comes from understanding what is the attitude that Jesus has toward you sinners. And to me as a sinner. Verse 29 is a description of the very heart of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon says that there are 89 chapters in the four Gospels. And this is the only verse when you get to see how Jesus talks about his heart. And he says that he is gentle and humble in heart. A book that we recommend here in the church, and I know that many of you guys have read, is Dane Ortland's book called Gentle and Lowly. That is based on this verse. And there he explains that the word gentle means to be gentle or meek or humble. And this is what he says. Jesus is not trigger happy, no harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not to point fingers, but to, but to welcome you with open arms. See, that doesn't make any sense to me. Because I know how sinful I am. I know what I have done. I know I deserve judgment. And yet Jesus says, come to me. With open arms. Like a gentle savior. That brings you in. And Dane explains that the word lowly means accessible. And this is what he says. So accessible that he's approachable. That there are no prerequisites before coming to him. No hoops to jump. Did you know that this is one of the things that makes Christianity different to any other religion in the world? In every religion in the world, either you fix yourself or you got to do something to come to a place of, of salvation. Only Christianity offers a God that comes, humbles himself, that is gentle and lowly and is approachable, that doesn't come, that he doesn't wait for people to come to him. He comes first. Come to me. So if you're not a Christian yet, and I'm not going to assume that everyone in this room is a Christian yet, or if you're watching with us online that you're a Christian yet. It doesn't matter the amount of your guilt and the stuff that you've done. If you understand that you are responsible, if you understand that you have rejected the truth of God, if you understand that you reserve, uh, deserve the judgment of God, come to him. 
This is how I know that if you're not a Christian, God already came to you. Because you're listening to this message. Come to me. And if you're a Christian, you still struggle with guilt. You still struggle knowing that you know you deserve judgment. And Jesus says exactly the same thing to you. Come to me. Keep coming to me time and time again. I will never reject you. Come to me. Now, the third thing, thing that leads to repentance has to do with the concept of judgment. See, I told you before that God cannot just be a God of love and not a God of judgment. God cannot look at your sin and my sin. Oh, it's okay. Because the moment he does that, he stops being holy and he stops being uh, loving. Actually, the moment he does that, sin has permission to go crazy. So how was God going to fix this problem? How is it that God was going to hold his justice and judgment while at the same time extend love? Well, making sure that whatever needed to be paid would be paid. The difference, though, is that it wouldn't be you and I, but Jesus instead of us. One of the most beautiful things about the gospel is that we see at the cross God fulfilling everything that the Lord required and at the same time extending love and mercy and grace and adoption. This is one of the reasons why we participate in communion. Because we want to repent. And we want to repent because we got this beautiful picture of an amazing, powerful God that does not debilitate his law, that exalts judgment and at the same time exalts love. This is for Christians, all right? If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is for you. And if you haven't done that yet, I'm going to ask you to just pass this one and come to him. But before participating, I want to put an image in your head. I want you to see as the, as the woman that was caught in adultery. That's you and that's me. And Jesus says to the people that he's looking at us. Whoever is free of condemnation and sin, throw the first stone. And everyone has to walk away. But then he looks at us and says, sin no more. You know, the only reason why Jesus could do that to that lady there is because later on he was going to take the condemnation that she deserved. The condemnation you and I deserve. So as we participate in communion, I want you to see what this means. So we're going to take a few seconds just to examine our hearts as the Bible calls us to. Check to see where, where your guilt is, your judgment is, 
Check to see how much you understand the grace of God. And then we will participate. Jesus says, come, all of you, come to me. Come with all your guilt. Come with all your pride. I have, I have taken that away. Let's remove the first cover on the side of the bread. And the Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate. Now let's remove the cup, the cover of the, of the other side of the cup, where you find the wine or the juice. And Jesus says, after, after supper, he also took the cup, said, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may participate. Allow me to pray. Lord, we understand that guilt is a real thing. That we cannot get rid of it, even if we try hard. That we need to be declared innocent and pure and clean. That we need to be declared forgiven and accepted. And that's precisely what Jesus did. Him taking the judgment we deserved to give us the love he deserved. I pray, Lord, that we may be able to see, understand, and apply that to our hearts. So we believe and we repent. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus. And we all say. Man, church, I love that God's heart, his disposition is to come for us.
to invite us in. He takes pleasure, he delights in bringing us peace, in redeeming us and restoring us, in giving us everlasting joy with him. And that is great news for sinners like you and I. And so whatever your burden is, come to Jesus, find rest in him. So you may know this song. It's a new song. If you know it, feel free to stand with me and sing. If you don't, you want to reflect uh, further this morning, that's okay. You can remain seated and pray and bring your burdens to him as well. So let's worship him. Jesus draws you, rest in Him. He is gentle, He is lowly, He delights to bring us peace. Tender shepherd, mighty Savior, rest in Yeah. 
Come to him. Come to him, those that are weary and burdened. Because the Lord in Jesus already blessed you. Because God in Jesus is already keeping you. Because God in Jesus is already uh, shining his face on you. Because God in Jesus is already gracious to you. And because God in Jesus... Is already facing you and already gave you peace. Therefore, go and live that out. Thanks for coming, church. We love you. Church, you are sent. <laughs>